a listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day crew, you are listening to episode 125 of the Howie Games Part A featuring dual Olympian Daniel Kowalski. Kowalski on turns with Skitko, Brimbilla comes in and He's gets the him. silver. He's get Kowalski has sprinted past him. Just... Kowalski yes! touches him out. Oh, how about that? Courage personified. Yes. Now, before we continue, I have a joke for you that I enjoyed. In fact, I don't have a joke for you. Fourth-time Formula One world champion Sebastian Vettel has the joke. He delivered it in a press conference recently. I loved it. So there's this matchstick climbing the hill, and it's all sweaty because it's exhausted. Nearly at the top of the hill, there's a hedgehog walking by, and the matchstick goes, oh, if only I had known there's a bus, I would have taken the bus. You're laughing, aren't you? I know you are. Even if you're trying not to admit it, that is a cracking gag. The porcupine, he gets to the top, he's a bass. He's got, like, matches sticking out of him. Cracking, cracking gag. Anyway, I know you laughed. As you're about to hear, I've always been a fan of Dan. He was a beast in the pool, breaking records at the 96 Atlanta Games when he medalled in the 200 400 and 1500 metre freestyle. 1500 free, a storied race in Australian sports history. Brutal, painful, and from the outside looking in, it just seems so long and hard. And Dan took on Australia's best, who are also the world's best of all time, Perkins and then Hackett. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood to your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by This is an episode that is really close to my heart as it doesn't gloss over the hard reality of professional sport. The fact that no matter how much an athlete trains and how much they want something, they don't always win and they don't always do their best on the biggest stages. They fail, in their eyes anyway. What you and I view as phenomenal, special, extraordinary even, during his career, Dan viewed as failure and weakness. It's a really, really hard way to look at yourself. So many lost and left behind no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes For the first time in this podcast, the subject of sexuality is raised, in this case, sexual preference. And it raised a really great conversation about inclusion, understanding, the pain caused by hurtful comments and ignorance, and general love for everyone in the community. Daniel Kowalski is a wonderful person. I hope you enjoy his story as much as I did. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, one of Australia's great sportsmen who's doing very important things now, multiple Olympic medalist and one of the real nice guys of Australian sport, Daniel Kowalski, joins me on the show. Dan, it is a treat to have you on. How are you going? Howie, great to, to see you and I'm super excited and honoured to be a part of this 
amazing podcast. I'm biased. I, I actually listen to it, and so to be on it is pretty cool. That, that's that's made my day. You've buttered me up nicely. <laughs> what? Uh, give me an episode that you took something from. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, I, I really admire Joe Ingalls. Right. Um, and for me, you know, he's someone. Whilst I haven't listened to the entirety of it, I know that um, the work that he does away from basketball is is pretty powerful, um, and. He just seems like the most down-to-earth, humble yeah. young man um, and the work that he's doing doing in the autism space and promoting the awareness around that with Renee is, is pretty powerful. Did you listen to one of your former teammates, Grant Hackett, on the show or not? I actually haven't listened to that one, but I did see a lot of the excerpts from because that one went yeah. viral throughout the, the newspaper network. So um, I, I I find listening sometimes to my some of my teammates um, sometimes really inspiring, but also can be quite difficult as well. He really threw me because it's it's the one quote from a hundred odd episodes that sticks in my mind when we were talking about uh, silver and bronze medals, and he said he was disgusted by his silver medals. And I remember saying at the time, "Oh, that gee, that's harsh. That's a harsh word, disgust." And he's like, "No, that's the way I feel." He must have been. Well, he obviously was just a competitive beast. That man, a competitive beast. He was, and you could just see him, like I had the great fortune of training with him for a number of years yep. and the amount of coffee cups he broke by throwing his <laughs> pool boy and connecting with the, the coffee cup or he would, you know, quite often punch the wall and you'd be like, oh, he's going he's gonna to break his hand or do some damage here. He was super, super competitive. Um, but away from the pool, he was as, as funny a guy that, I, that I've ever met. <laughs> Dan, I work in an unusual industry in sports media where we are lucky enough to speak to all sorts of elite athletes, people in sport, and there's this, what's the best way to describe it? There's from the journalist, not that I'm a journalist, or the person asking the question or the commentator, there's almost this too cool for school approach that you don't tell the athlete if you admire them because it's seen to be crossing some barrier and you're meant to be professional. So you don't say to a footballer at the start of interview, you know, I'm a massive fan of your work. I don't know why that is. And and we were having a discussion in the player profile about one of your heroes and I said, have you told him? So it's not a theory I subscribe to. I'm taking a long way to get to this, but I have always, and I don't typically say this at the start of the podcast, I've always been an enormous fan of you and you were the swimmer that I was always cheering for against the legends of Hackett and Perkins and we'll get to 96. I was well and truly in your corner and I'm not sure why, but for me, therefore, it's a real treat to have you on the show because you're someone I've looked up to for a long time and I'm not one of these people that that skips around the fact that I'm an enormous fan, so I'm pumped that you're on the show, mate. Um, I, don't, I don't like, I don't take compliments I get I get embarrassed, but I, I was, that that means uh, a hell of a lot, um, and yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'm not no, no. <laughs> not really sure what to say. No, no, it's something that I, I wanted to tell you, and yeah, I, I've long been a fan, and I also wanted to tell you through a mutual friend of ours, 
Nicole Livingston, who taught me how to ask questions about <laughs> swimmers and when I was working on the swimming and I didn't know the difference between the backstroke and the breaststroke. And she was a fan. We, we Basically, we were in a situation, I think it was South Australia, Adelaide, I think the Aussie titles were there, and a group of us had dinner together and I really, really wanted to sit next to you because as someone admired you, I had a million questions for you. So now for me, I get the opportunity to answer. You won't remember that dinner, but now I get the opportunity to ask you those questions. I vaguely do remember that. I reckon it was um, it was probably uh, 2012 or 2013 and uh, we were in Glenelg maybe. Um, yes. I mean, I love Nicole. She's one of my best friends, but sometimes it's hard to get a word in when you've got people... <laughs> like that there, so um, probably easier to do it here. Yeah, and it wasn't the appropriate time to ask you, you know, it, we were in the middle of the Australian Championships and I was swing, 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 so it wasn't the appropriate time to sidle up to you and fire into these questions, but now is an appropriate <laughs> time. It's fantastic. So firstly, w- what are you up to now? What, what's your life involved, mate? Um, I'm about two and a half years in as the um, Olympian Services Manager at the Australian Olympic Committee, so... Um, it was a sort of newly created or expanded on role, um, which really wanted to focus on the transition of the Olympians, um, obviously from sport to, to real life, but the reality is, and we've seen it through COVID, is that people go through transitions throughout their life, um, either forced or something that they choose to embark on. So providing that support network, um, increasing that engagement and genuine um, engagement with our Olympic alumni. Um, so it's it's been an, an amazing roller coaster so far because you, you start and then you get into the role and all of a sudden you, you're facing a postponed games and the like. So it's it's a great honour to be a part of, of this organisation. I've really enjoyed it to date. What do you reckon the most difficult thing is from your experience in the last couple of years for Olympic athletes who often don't have financial security behind them when they retire because they're not footballers or cricketers or basketballers. What do you think the most difficult thing about transition is? Identity. Um, for, for a lot of them, as you mentioned, they're doing it um, um, on, on a really, really tight to, to no budget, relying on a lot of support from family, friends and, and their general support network. And so everything they invest is into being this particular athlete um, of a chosen sport that they excel at. And then you remove that and coming to terms with that, that was the identity at that point in time of your life. It will always be your identity, but you've got the, the skills and the attributes to now go on and create further identities, just getting them to understand that that it is normal and then you work with what you already know and build on it from there. And how's the AOC tackled the great unknown of for the last 100 years, apart from a couple of world wars, you would know what date you were set to perform on and everything, swimming, it's tapering, tapering and getting the training in. How has the AOC gone to calm the minds of the athletes that have been thrown into disarray about as to when they were going to get their chance and even more as to whether they were going to get their chance, mate? Do you know the resilience of the athletes and the coaches and the support staff who work day in, day out on, you know, getting to the games? It's been incredible. Um, You know, there's no doubt that there, there are a lot of 
anxiety and, and really anxious moments, but the way in which they've conducted themselves and just got on with the job um, and then listen to the advice that comes out. One thing that we have wanted to do is to ensure that um, we are the source of truth when it comes to disseminating the information. Um, a lot of people have opinions and so forth, but we wanted everyone who was aspiring to get to Tokyo, everyone who's aspiring to get to the Beijing Winter Olympic Games, that there's going to be a lot of noise around you, but you listen to the noise that comes out of here and, and from the IOC. And um, But, you know, it's been really inspiring to see just how people have just got on with the job. Just back to when you were talking about the transition from being an athlete to being a normal punter, for want of a better term, mate, what was the process like for you when you retired from swimming? I was super lucky. Um, I, I, I was sort of forced to retire and that physically my body couldn't do it anymore. Um, my parents were very strong in ensuring that I finished school and then for me um, university was an option and so to, to complete that. Um, but I had also seen people around me um, either in swimming or from other sports you know, struggle with that. Um, and so I, I learned from, from what I'd seen and the, so it made the, the transition quite seamless. Um, I, I mean, I did miss the routine and elements of being told what to do on a, on a regular basis, but I feel like I was in a very fortunate position because I, I'd been so well supported throughout my career. So first thing, uh, when I started looking at the life and times of Daniel Kowalski, which threw me, was born in Singapore. That is something I didn't know about you. Yeah, um, my dad, a drilling engineer and worked all throughout Southeast Asia. Um, my dad was Canadian and my mum was English. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he was there for work. And I grew up in Southeast Asia till I was five, actually. And then it wasn't until he got relocated to Adelaide that we... We moved to Australia and um, became citizens, you know, shortly thereafter. But, yeah, very, very, I guess, different upbringing to what I um, imagine some people might assume. Do you have any memories of your, you know, you're only five. That Normally you probably have one or two memories from that sort of first five. Is anything stick in your mind from that period? Yeah, the final place we lived in was um, in Indonesia, in, in Jakarta, and um, we lived in a, a complex full of, um, expats and you know there were a lot of kids of, of similar age and there was a, a pool um, which had you know play equipment in it and I can always remember spending as much time as as I could with our friends in, in that pool it was it was a lot of fun. So did you get swimming lessons there or did swimming lessons start when you were in Australia? Um, it was more it just sort of happened um, my dad <coughs> would, would just sort of join my sister and I and you know, throw throw some sort of tips at us. Um, I never really had any formal lessons per se, learn to swim. Um, it was essentially just thrown in the pool and, and fend for yourself. Um, it was only when we got to Adelaide, I signed up for one lesson, but they moved me straight into squad following that. So um, it was something, I guess, it just came naturally to me. How did your Canadian father and your English mother meet? We're going back into the ancestry now. Yeah, um, mum was living in Perth, um, so her family immigrated. Um, and then dad was left home at 18, 
um, had done a semester or two at university, put that on hold, and then they met um, sort of in, in an apartment block in Perth. And then Dad had to go back to Canada and then he made his way back out to Australia and then the, the, the rest is history, as they say. And have you spent any time in Canada or England sort of following the roots of those sides of your families or not? Not the UK, um, but Canada we used to, up until I started getting serious about my swimming, have every second Christmas. Um, my dad and his his family are from Vancouver Island, so it's a beautiful part of Canada. So used to really love those Christmases because I mean, for the most part it was white um, and having experienced Christmas in, in Adelaide when it can get to 40-plus degrees, <laughs> I actually preferred the snow as a younger kid but soon grew out of the love of snow and much preferred being able to go to the beach on Christmas Day. Random question, Do you ever see the killer whales off uh, the island or not? No, but quite often we'd see a lot of wildlife on the ferry ride from Vancouver to Victoria. Yeah. It was it was pretty special to be able to, to do that. And I think um, my partner's never been to, to Canada, so once travel restrictions are lifted and, and things calm down, it would be great to be able to get there and and revisit some of those places I went to as a kid. I didn't realise there was a synergy between that and, and your first Commonwealth Games because they would have been in Victoria, weren't they? In lane four, swimming for Australia, Daniel Kowalski. 349.28. Exactly right, yeah, great memory. So um, it was great because my grandparents got to be able to, to see me swim and I got to see a lot of my family. Let's see if Perkins can break the world record. He slipped no, by 0.7 seconds to the second. Where the village was, was the campus that my dad started university. He, he never went back. Um, but the, the thing that my dad always talks about was he remembers just driving the car right up to the front door of a car park. Um, and to think nowadays you go to a multi-sport event and if you're a spectator, you, you just can't get mm. that close anymore. And so that's my dad's major takeaway from those games. <laughs> <laughs> We've skipped ahead a bit there. So you, you said you were um, you went straight from your first lesson to squad. So you were obviously naturally good at swimming. My sister was um, an incredible swimmer. And so as being the younger sibling, I was forever, you know, chasing her. And so for, for, for me, it was a matter of following my sister to the pool who was sort of scouted at a school swimming carnival and she went straight to squad and so they threw me into um, that learn to swim and like I said I, I progressed straight to squad but it was all because I would follow my sister and that you know that was a lot of sort of Marco Polo type scenario <laughs> in the pool and it sort of progressed from there. And what was it about swimming that grabbed you as a young bloke because it's not I, I see my kids now and, and their friends, you know, they're 9 and 11, swimming is an enormous commitment right from the start. It's not like oh, you just go on a Saturday morning and swim a few laps. It, it's a fully committed sport from a young age, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Apart from it being the only thing that I could kind of do, you know, my first <laughs> my first years of schooling were at an American school, so traditional Australian sports were obviously not the norm. Um, and so coming to Australia, my dad recognised very early that sport was a massive fabric of this country. And so I couldn't, I didn't even know really what cricket was 
Um, Aussie rules was definitely not on the radar. Um, and so for me, swimming seemed like the safest bet. And like I said, it was, it was the only thing that I could do. <laughs> what was the first race you can recall winning and getting that blue ribbon in? Um, outside of the school swimming carnival, it was actually the state titles in, in Adelaide. Um, and it, well, I didn't get a ribbon in it. Um, what happened was I'd only ever swam in a 25 metre pool and it was, it was meant to be, um, um, a hundred metres backstroke. And I kept on looking for the wall at 25 or what I thought was 25, and then I just kept on going and I ended up banging my head at the 50, and then I never, I, got, I cried and got out. So I, I remember that one vividly, but I don't really remember um, one, the first one that I won. So as a youngster, what did winning do for you? Was it that's just part of what I do? Did it fill you with joy or fulfilment, or was it, were you a competitive cat as a young bloke? Yeah, I was internally competitive. Um, I was a part of a great group um, of young swimmers in in Adelaide. Um, So I wasn't the best in my club. But I do remember we'd go to carnivals and at those days you would get prizes with um, your position. So I remember getting some Derwent colouring pencils, which I thought was the absolute bee's knees. (laughs) That's the ones everyone wanted, the Derwins. They were your Ferrari of pencil. Yeah, you know, you had the two layers of it. Oh, the double layer. Yeah, I just thought, you know, you can have your metal. I don't want that. Just give me the Derwin colouring pencils. (laughs) So at what age did it start to become a prevalent part of your life and starting to think, well, maybe this is what I could do? Surprisingly quite late. Um, I mean, it, my sister started losing school holidays when I was about 13 because they would always be um, the time when swimming events were on. So that's when, you know, family started making some big decisions. But it probably wasn't until the Olympic trials in 92 when I just missed out on making the team. But I thought, well, maybe, you know, this dream of making the Australian swimming team could be a reality. What's your first Olympic memory? Were you someone sitting at home watching a certain Olympic Games? Yeah, Clarity 84, um, just something about those games. Maybe it was the backdrop of LA. Um, And that rocket man coming into the stadium at the opening ceremony. I remember John Seaman vividly... um, one of the ones I really remember is Rob Woodhouse in for 400 oh, yeah. IM out in lane one. Uh, Glynis Nunn, Heptathlon, Dean Lucan in, in the weightlifting. So now if he gets this 240, he'll take the gold away from Mario Martinez. This is going to be a tremendous effort. He's got two lifts in which to do it. It's five kilos heavier than he's ever oh, lifted look before. At My word, this tremendous. is encouraging. Now can he jerk it? Yes, he's he got can. It. Tremendous got effort. It. Let's yes, wait he's on got it. it. Let's wait and see. There he's it got three right fights. It's a gold medal to Dean Lucan of Australia. What a tremendous effort. And Have a Paul look at Popper. the coach, Paul Popper and Ralph Cashman. Oh, what jubilant. a sensational lift by Dean Lucan of Australia. What a tremendous effort. There were so many things that I remember so vividly about those games and I just thought this this thing is for real. How do I how do I do it? And you know, do I do, do I buy a ticket and rock up? Like how does this work? I was so 
every school project after that was on the Olympic Games. With the thought of competing or just seeing? At that point in time, I didn't understand the concept, so it was just a matter of I just thought it was like a carnival and you rocked up um, <laughs> and you didn't get the Derwent colouring pencils. You got, like, some cool stuff. But I, I didn't understand the concept really for a, probably a couple of years after that when I started to see some more swimming events on TV um, and then it sort of went from there realising, oh, you can actually do this. Um, and so that was when it became, like, the goal, the dream. Back to Dan in a minute. Next up on the Howie Games, a bloke that has a crack at everything that comes his way, Dylan Olcott. What is it like when you go to school and are seen as something different and are teased about being different? Like, what effect can that have on a person? Oh, it was rock bottom for me and and the biggest regret that I had was I didn't tell anyone because we as people are too stoic, kids, teenagers, adults, we all take it on and, you know, I'm not saying I was a perfect kid either and there's probably people listening and said, oh, yeah, but you were a dickhead and I test that and I apologise. But, you know, I learnt pretty young like how how much it affected me because I'm obviously different. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm already struggling with that. I'm, you know, starting to date. I'm different. Oh, my mates are playing footy. You can be the scorer or the goal umpire. No, I want to play. Oh, yeah, but you're different. So you already know you're different. And then when people pinpoint and tell you that you are a cripple, a spastic, whatever, just to get a laugh, it cut me so deep. And, uh, you know, especially for young, that's why I try and do what I do, mate, and really use my platform for good to change the perceptions of disability, especially for young people, because people always say, hang on, I've got to ask you a question. Would you rather be 22, able-bodied, have a car crash, be a paraplegic, know what it's like to walk or not have any idea, right? Or be born with a disability like me, have no idea what it's like to kick a footy, go to the beach, but at least you don't know. Great question, yeah? What would you do? Well, you have this discussion with your kids. Are you actually seriously asking me? Yeah. I think I'd want to know both sides of the coin. Great question. Great answer, right? I think I, I, I don't know any difference. I love my being born with my disability, but I will say this. If you have an accident when you're 22, hopefully you might have a partner, family, mates around you that can help you through it, right? It's still devastating, but, you know, it's not that as bad as everyone thinks it is, um, but you need the right mindset. The problem with being born with a disability is... Kids can be brutal. Yeah. It's tough, man. That's Dylan Olcott next up on the show. Alrighty, let's get back to Dan. We're, we're a pretty similar age because I can remember being infatuated with Kyle Lewis and he had he had that red top on and his running, but I remember Dean Lucan and then they were describing that he was a tuna fisherman and he got his strength apparently from ripping the tunas out of the ocean into the boat and then he was a weightlifter. Yeah, <laughs> as you can imagine, like as a kid in, in South Australia, knowing that this guy was from, you know, I mean a fair way away relatively speaking, but he, he, he lived in this state, that was incredible. Yeah, that was a that was a, that's my first memory of the Olympic Games. So you you how was that first? It's funny what you say that you just thought it was like any other carnival and you could rock up. Can you imagine if you or any other athlete was able to take that mental approach into the Olympic Games? Is just turn up and it's just like another swimming carnival? Uh, <laughs> um, my mum used to tell me that I would say, "Do I can we go to Target to buy the tracksuit?" I just thought it was. 
I thought it was, uh, you know, I was that naive. But, yeah, I, I think um, what I've come to realise is that it's, it's between here that separates those who get to the top of a podium and those who, who don't when you're at that level. But if you could have that naive approach that I had as that nine-year-old kid, things would have been a hell of a lot easier and far more enjoyable probably. So were you stronger physically or were you stronger mentally? Oh, um, mentally, I was an, um, very weak. Um, physically, I, you know, I was, you know, I was a good swimmer. I, 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 I don't, I don't feel like I was a great swimmer. I was a good swimmer, um, but mentally, I just didn't, I didn't have what it took to be to be blunt. Wow. Well, well, we'll talk about that a bit later on. Self-perception is obviously who you are, the way you see things, but Olympic gold medal in a relay, Olympic silver medals, Olympic bronze medals, 96 silver, bronze, bronze. How can you say you're only a good swimmer? Like there's some extraordinary – I don't write much down, but your achievements are quite extraordinary for a bloke that you're saying is only a good swimmer. There's not many good swimmers achieve what you've achieved, Dan. I think the way in which I see it is – I was very fortunate to be a part of um, a golden era of swimming in, in this country. And so when you have teammates like Kieran Perkins, Susie O'Neill, Ian Thorpe, Grant Hackett, Michael Klim, who had so much success, they were great swimmers. Um, and so in terms of where I'm my sort of where I was on the pecking order on the Australian swimming team, I was good, but I wasn't great. And so for me, that's how I kind of rationalise that. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm extremely proud of that. I'm really proud of it but uh, and comfortable with it. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, the way I, I viewed it. So I'm fascinated what you said about the, the, the mental aspect of it. If you had been stronger mentally, they're your words, not mine, I want to I wanna put that right out there, would you have been a great swimmer in your mind? Um. So in my mind, you know, greatness is, you know, at, at the time, greatness is defined by um, the colour of the medal and I didn't get the colour of the medal that I wanted. Um, and the flip side to that was the mental strength and fortitude that Kieran demonstrated in 96 out in lane eight, clearly not on his game physically, but what he was able to conjure up to just dive in and just go like that and back himself that is mental strength. And I didn't have that. I was in lane four. I'd had an incredible week, but I didn't have didn't have that strength or I didn't back myself to just go in and dive and swim like I knew I was capable of doing. I just, I wasn't strong enough. We'll talk about that. I, I often find with, I found talking to Kate Campbell, that Olympians and Grant as well, that Olympians love being Olympians, but I don't think they sometimes understand the love and respect that the general public has for Olympians and you you say it was defined by the colour of your medal. I'm pumped that you listen to this show so you'll know that my kids ask questions. (laughs) And you're already chuckling. To illustrate what young kids think of Olympians is always a great way, I think, for the Olympian to, to get a chance to step back occasionally and go, wow, yeah, that was me at that age. And I thought every Olympian was a phenomenal athlete, which in the eyes of the general public like me, that is absolutely true. But your your 
against the elite of the elite. So you get my um, you get my 11-year-old, Pickle, who watched some videos of you this morning. Are you ready to go? This is what you get. Hi, Dan. Pickle here. I think it's amazing that you're a dual Olympian. Wow, that is so cool. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to watching all the events at the Tokyo Olympics. But if I got to go to the Olympics, I would love to go to the food hall, be in the opening ceremony, and stand on a podium, about to be presented a medal, knowing that you were one of the world's best athletes. That would be so cool. But what was your favourite thing about the Olympics? So before you, before you answer that, do you understand why I prefaced it by saying what I said? Because as an 11-year-old, that's the best of the best. Just being an Olympian is enough. Yeah, um, and I, I hear that and um, I, at the time you get so caught up in, in outcome, in results, you forget a lot about the process um, and it isn't till you are removed um, that you are able to reflect back on why that was a dream as a nine-year-old kid. And so when you hear the, the excitement um, and what it means to an 11-year-old, it, it, what it does to me, it frustrates me and angers me that I got so worked up about the outcome and the result and I forgot to enjoy the process. So to answer the 11-year-old's question, what was your favourite thing about the Olympics you went to? Um, being an absolute sports tragic, just to be in that environment with, you know, the world's best athletes, you know, basketball tragic, so seeing the dream team. And whilst they didn't stay in the village, there was a couple of times that they were were in, in the village, you know, Muhammad Ali walking past in the dining hall, sitting opposite, you know, Lindsay Davenport and Monica Sellers who were in the dining hall, stuff like that was was very surreal um, and to be able to to experience it um, was a real pinch me moment. It's funny that she mentioned the food hall because I've been lucky enough to work at a couple of Olympics and I did the old um, cliche, this is, uh, we're allowed inside the Olympic food hall and, you know, this is what the weightlifters eat, this is what the gymnasts eat. And it was cool. It was, it was really cool and the story always comes out, you know, there's a burger there, you can get a burger and that's what Usain Bolt said he had with the chicken nuggets. Um, what, what were your memories of being in the, in the food hall or, or is it just so not part of what you're doing when you're at the Olympics? Oh, 100% it is what you're doing. Is it? <laughs> I love this. Maybe that's where, where I got it all wrong. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I I remember Sydney for the pizza in the dining hall. I only swam the one event. So, like, I, I had a different approach. Whereas in Atlanta, I was a lot more conscious of what I was eating. But I just, I was continually mesmerised by the amount of elite athletes eating McDonald's. Like, I get that it was free, but in my mind I was like, this, is this, am I really seeing this correctly? And so I I was forever, like, just staring at people who were eating McDonald's and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Well, I'll reel off a few stats with you. So uh, 1994 Commonwealth Games, we mentioned, was that your first, what was your first international team? Was that your first international team or not? I was, my rookie was 93, Pampax. Okay. So 
when you realised that you couldn't go to Target and get your tracksuit, when you were first given your tracksuit as an Australian representative, did it have an impact on a young Daniel Kowalski or not? Um, it did because um, it took me a long time to feel like I belonged and was a part of the team um, and the fact that a lot of my new teammates, I had posters of them on my wall. Um, you know, my, my hero was, was Kieran and this is a year after he wins in Barcelona. Um, and so it was all very surreal and I was always so nervous that I was going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing that I, I just, I, I felt, you know, like I didn't, didn't belong. Um, and that was it was it was interesting because it was a dream come true, but it was also like, holy shit, what am I doing? Here? Yeah. So how do you compete against your hero? Um, well, clearly when it counted, I struggled. Um, you know, it it was it, it was hard. I mean, it, it was hard. Don't get me wrong; I was still super competitive, and I I really wanted to to beat him. And I and I I beat him a couple of times, and it, it really lit this lit this fire in his belly like at Commonwealth Games trials in 94. I break 15 minutes for the first time and then um, he comes out of Commonwealth Games and breaks two world records in one swim. And then 96, obviously, he um, has a relative for him. He has a shocker at trials, doesn't qualify in the 400, comes second in the 1500, but then puts it together when it counts in, in the actual game. So... Uh, for me, like I, I could do it when it didn't count, but when it counted, I, I just wasn't capable of, of doing it. Ninety four, I was ne- I was not in his league. I, I was actually never in his league, really. He was a lot quicker than I ever was over fifteen hundred. But ninety six, and we've spoken about it a couple of times. I just, I just didn't make the most of my opportunity. Well, I spoke to a couple of people, Dan, and they said they've never seen a trainer like you. They said you were just a beast in the pool. What what's training at its peak before you're tapering for one of these major events? What's involved? And I think that's why, I think that's one of the reasons I had tremendous admiration for you because not knowing anything about it, you'd see the sprinters and I'd think to myself, gee, they must have to train. Then I'd see what you guys would do, whether it was you or Grant or Kieran or Glenn Houseman, and to me that just seemed like a world of pain to be able to get to that level. Oh, man, I loved, I loved the pain in training. I absolutely loved it. Um, and when, um, uh, you know, Grant and I um, had the same coach, Dennis Cottrell, for a number of years, um, Dennis's focus was really, you know, race pace, high-end speed, a lot of quality focus, um, not as many kilometres in the arms as my coach that I had for the 96 Olympics in Bill Nelson, where it was a real grinded out, a lot of, of kilometres. Um, and for me, I... I thrived better in Dennis's system um, and I loved what he was able to bring out of me in, in the training pool. And for me, it was, you know, about 50 to 60, sometimes 70 kilometres a week, but a lot of just, a lot of trying to hit race pace or faster, um, a lot of challenging workouts where, you know, you'd be doing four kilometre sessions, 10 400s without getting too specific uh, on a very limited rest. And I just loved and thrived on on the challenge of that. What did you love about the pain and how did you, where would you take yourself? We've talked about the mental side, which we'll get to again, but where do you take yourself mentally when your body's telling you to stop and your mind's somehow telling you not to? 
oh, just that, just keep going, like that feeling of, you know, dry reaching after you get to the to the wall, you know, you couldn't have done anymore. I just, for some reason, I loved it. And you could see improvement. And I think that was a really telling thing is when Dennis would write something up and you already had a benchmark of what you had achieved previously and you could hit it again or hit it and do it better. That, that for me, was as big a rush as I could ever get. Um, and then the interesting thing is as I got older and the body started to wear down was being able to then approach a workout and be like, hey, listen, I, I'm not going to get anywhere near what I used to six, seven years ago, but I can do this or do that. And so I'd be able, I was able to start recognising the small wins and, and they were really important in the last couple of years of my career. So when you're at, at the, the whips are cracking stage of the 1500 and the way you and Kieran swam it and then obviously that was how Grant was taught the whips were cracking right from the start. Like you guys would go out that hard and sort of blow your opposition out of the water. What starts to hurt? Is it is it a muscle ache or is it is it your heart or is it a cardio? Like what starts to hurt when when you're really going? For me, it was the stomach. I would the stomach. It, yeah, it was almost like a stomach cramp. Um, and when you're in the zone, like it just felt, which wasn't that often to be honest in a race. <laughs> Um, it was like it wasn't 30 laps, it was one lap. But when you weren't quite there, you, I would feel it in my stomach. I'd feel it in the turns, like trying to get over in the tumble turn and get off a wall and then then it would be in the breath, like trying to hold that one one stroke off a wall without breathing, stuff like that. You know, the things that you practice all the time, but when it comes to racing and the fatigues that's in, when you should do it, I, I just was not <laughs> capable of doing it. I'm like, give me some air. I need something bad. So we, we mentioned the Commonwealth Games and then uh, silver again at the World Championships in Rome, So, which must have been st- straight after, I guess, thinking... Uh, Thinking back to, so Perkins 14.50, you 14.53. The clock ticking away. Perkins will be just outside that championship record. He is 14.50.52. Kowalski 14.53.42. That's the fastest time he's ever swum. He's gone past Glenhausen on the all-time list. What a performance by Kowalski. That, That has given me goosebumps. So you get to Atlanta, and you mentioned Kieran had already won. So what's it like? What's the best way to ask this, Dan? <laughs> what, what what's it like trying to take down the bloke that the majority of the country wants to win? And it, it wasn't a reflection on you. I, I, let's be honest. People wanted to see Kieran win a second in a row, and and Grant had the same thing in Sydney, obviously. Yeah, that was something that I really struggled with. Um, I I can't deny that I'm someone who wants people to to like me, and the thought that um, if I was to achieve a goal of mine, then people would not like me was really hard to to comprehend, and I struggled with that a lot. Um, I felt like in my mind I was in this no-win situation that if I did win then people would hate me and then um, if I didn't then I'd have to live with that disappointment Um, and I actually had I was asked that question um, after the Olympic trials at the night of the 1500 what's it like to be the most hated man in the country and for me that question uh, who asked you that question um a journalist 
and that's a terrible question. That was at the time I didn't understand why the context of the question, and it, I understood it later. But as this twenty-year-old kid who just achieved a dream that week, that was really difficult to comprehend. And I, obviously, I couldn't. I didn't know how to answer that question, but um, that stuck with me for for a while. That's a tough position to find yourself in, as you say, in your mind, not in the real world, but in your mind, if you win, you're hated, and if you don't win, you're hated by yourself. Like that's a, that, that is the proverbial rock and a hard place, Dan. Yeah, I, in, in the context of where I was at, it, it was. Um, it really was. And, and for me, it was a, it was a daily battle. Um, and, you know, the self-talk, wasn't genuine self-talk. I didn't believe what I was saying in in my in my head, um, and I think that was evident come the night of the final of the fifteen hundred. Well, prior to the final of the fifteen hundred, and, and again, I only write it down when it's specific. So, bronze in the two hundred in a personal best. In front, Loder. Kowalski is starting to storm through now. Loder's in front. Kowalski may have moved to second. It's going to be very tight. Going in in front. It's won by Loder. Oh, it's a blanket finish for second. Touching it. Borges, 148.08. Kowalski, 148.25. What a magnificent swing by Daniel Kowalski. You're getting the medals as a 1500 swimmer. Look at that. And a bronze for Australia. A fantastic swim. And I, I watched the post-race interview and you were stoked. You were like my 11-year-old that had won an Olympic medal. Like you were just full of joy about that performance and the fact you'd won a medal at that point. That's that's what I see looking back at that interview. Oh. Dan, you've just swam your second PB for today. You just won a bronze medal. What's going through your mind? I can't believe it. I got a medal. I can't believe it. 100%. That, exactly right. That was my favourite race ever. And then the 400, where the same chap, Loder from New Zealand, beat you. The battle in front, Loder by about a metre in second place is Palmer. And across in lane two, Kowalski is clearly third. It looks like another bronze. Loder's in front. Can Kowalski get Palmer? I don't think so. Loder goes into touch first. Palmer gets second. Kowalski gets third. You couldn't have been more opposite. Like, you were that flat about your performance, about that particular medal, which was a bronze as well. So wh- why the why the shift in what would have been a, a short period of time, mate? You look good this morning, but said you're a bit tired. Yeah, you know, I never thought I'd be so disappointed in winning a bronze medal at the Olympic Games. I'm really disappointed in myself. I I think I went out well. I just, I, I, I'm at a level where I can't afford to worry about anyone else. And no matter what I do, I, I've got to be able to get that, that plan going. and. You know, it's my first Olympics and I, I wasn't that tired. Then I felt all right. I've just got to learn to control my emotions a lot more. Okay, the 15's in a couple of days. What happens between now and then? Learn to think about what Daniel Kowalski's done in the last six years to dedicate himself to, to this race and uh, not look at it like the Olympics. Look at it as just another meet and have fun. I think that's the most important thing. So at this particular point in time, we haven't won a gold medal in in the pool. Um, I'd been training for the 1500, so I had the endurance. I had the speed clearly by winning a bronze in the 200. It was all set up, you know, perfectly for me, 
Um, and this is the one race I actually wish I could get back. And my coach said to me, Bill said, with 150 metres to go, you've got to go then. You've got to go then. You can't save it for the last 50 because Loader's closing speed was was incredible and I needed to have some some space on him. And I got to the 250 mark and I knew what I had to do and I couldn't do it. I could not do it. And then to see that three next to my name, to get beaten by Paul Palmer was frustrating. I'd been racing Daniel since I was like 12 and I'd never beaten him. So it wasn't any different. It was just like being at, a, you know, a carnival in down under. But that was that was a frustrating thing. I, I couldn't do it. And, and that's, you know, that between, I, I've talked about it a lot, but you, you talk about the importance of what, what's between the ears. And I, for some reason, I just didn't have it. So this gets back to the question that Grant answered that he was disgusted with a silver medal and Kate Campbell, her episode is heartbreaking in a way because she was so devastated after Rio. But for for us mere mortals, we look at a silver medal with lights in our eyes. And I, I was taught this lesson when James Magnuson, also one of my favourite swimmers, was touched out, I think it was by Adrian, Nathan Adrian, in, in the 100 by, was it one one hundredth of a second, Dan? It was in London, uh, yeah. And and that was viewed as a failure. And I was like, oh, that doesn't compute to me. So with all that and, and your thoughts on, on, on coming second, for me it's a positive, so I want to talk about it, but I don't want to talk about that race for you if it's a negative. So where do you sit on it? Uh, it's 20, what are we, 25 years, okay. nearly 25 years on, a quarter of a century. I mean, it took me a while to to recognise that it was something that I was proud of. Um, but for a long time, it was, it was, all of that was extremely difficult other than the bronze. And when I'm just hearing my say, myself say that, it's just ridiculous to think that I could be disappointed with winning a medal at the Olympic Games. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but maybe, and I had this conversation with Grant, maybe that's why you're at the Olympic Games because you and Grant and Kate and Kieran view it as a failure, probably the, why the rest of us will be satisfied. So maybe that's why you're there in the first place, mate. Yeah, and also for me, you know, really proud to be a part of the strong tradition of the Australian Olympic team and in particular the yep. Australian swimming team. And so for me, I felt like I wasn't doing my part to continue that tradition as well. That's it for Daniel Kowalski, part A. Lots of goodness coming your way in part B. Listener.